We are back. I am Yaakov Langer. And I am Nachi Gordon. And you're listening to the Meaningful People podcast, but you already know that. And this week, we have someone from Eretz Yisrael. You clicked on the name, you know it already. Rabbi Beryl Wine, probably the most famous from historian. Yeah, he was an absolute wellspring of wisdom. Talking to him was just incredible. Wish we would have been able to be in the same room, right? In a in a different world, Mertzeshem Yaakov and I would have loved to, and we will love to travel around and and be in these guests' home and, and host them here. But this is you know the best we can do for now. We had an amazing time with Barawan. We're very appreciative of him lending his time and all the people who worked to make this one happen. And I think you guys will really love this episode. We delve into many different topics, um, history, Yiddishkeit, a little bit of politics, today, what it was then. Uh, we really hope you enjoyed this one. Stop giving, you're giving it away. Giving I know. It all I just give you cliff notes. You're, you're, <laughs> you're welcome. And just enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome to the Meaningful People Podcast, the podcast where we talk to people who are meaningful. Yeah, that sounds good. Today we are joined by Rabbi Beryl Wine as he sits in, I think, his home in Eretz Yisrael, and we're here in New York. Rabbi Wine, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So, Rabbi Wine, uh, could you give us some background about where you're from and, I guess, how you got to Eretz Yisrael? There's probably a, a lot in between that. but Well, basically, uh, I was born in Chicago. I lived in Chicago the first 30 years of my life. In Chicago, I was a, I studied in the Chicago Yeshiva and the Beis Medish Torah. I have smicha from there. And uh, I attended law school when I was a lawyer for nine years. And then I repented. What, what, uh, what made you, I guess, in your words, repent and, uh, leave the law field? I didn't really like it because, uh, at least in my experience, I saw people at their worst. People who come to a lawyer and they want the, the last nickel, or they want, you know, I mean, you're in a contentious uh, area. At least I was. Not all lawyers are. There are lawyers that deal with uh, much more benign subjects. But I just, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. What, was it difficult for you to, to leave it? I mean, even though you didn't like it? Well, it occupied so much of my time. I, I wanted, I always wanted to learn more. I wanted to be a Rav. I come from a family of Rabbonim. Our family in Europe was seven generations Rabbonim. My father was a Rav. My Seder was a Rav. So I wanted, but uh, in the early 1950s, uh, the Orthodox uh, rabbinate almost dissolved uh, in America, at least in Chicago. And I had to make a living. I married, and uh, we had children. We had to, I had to put bread on the table, so I was a lawyer. But then an opportunity arose from a... Uh, it was really generated by my Rosh Hashiva, by Rabbi Kreisberg, and by my good friend, Rabbi Aryeh Rotman, 
So uh, Rabbi Rotman was enrolled in a small congregation in Miami Beach. Very small, from 39 families, a storefront. And uh, my Christ used to always tell me, uh, you know, the Jews should be we have enough lawyers. I want you to be a rogue. I told him, Rebbe, you know, like you know, nothing open. In Chicago itself, there was a minion that I was like the rub of that minion. But it was, uh, you know, it was a, uh, wasn't official anything. I spoke, I taught, but... Uh, And I then realized that I couldn't be a Roman lawyer at the same time. Because a Roman is supposed to see people at their best. It just uh, wouldn't work. So uh, Rabbi Rotman was a Roman in Miami Beach, and he was leaving, and he said, uh, why don't you try out for the position? And I told him that I didn't think it was practical and that uh, I didn't have any experience, per se, in the Rabbanus. Why should they take me? But Rabbi Rotman was a very persistent person. So eventually I tried out, and eventually uh, he was elected. Later on, I found out I was elected because Rabbi Rotman had proxies in his pocket. And uh, we moved to Miami Beach. It was very interesting because the first year in the Ramonas, my salary was less than my income tax was the last year in the law. But I was much happier. And that little shul became a big shul. We ended up with 250 families. Built a beautiful building. It still exists in Miami Beach, Beth Israel. And I uh, was very happy. And uh, Miami Beach then was a wonderful place to raise your children. You never had to lock the door. You never locked your car. It was sunny 300 days a year. And all the great rabbis of the world came there in the winter, and I got to know all, and I never would have gotten to know. I knew the Ponovizhirov, I knew the Satmar Rebbe, I knew Rebbe Yaakov, I knew Rebbe Meisha, I knew everybody. If I would have stayed in Chicago, I wouldn't have known anybody. You just listed a bunch of very popular and incredible holy people. Do you do you have any, I mean, I know you do. do is there any story about maybe one of them that you could... A book of stories coming out. Okay. Uh, that will include stories about these people. But I don't want to waste my stories on a non-paying audience. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Do you, we but, recently... Uh, what do you want to know? I, I'll, I'll tell you about these people that, that I knew. Uh, um, so I know you mentioned Reb Yaakov Kamenetsky. Yes. Um, from what I understand, I think you, you used to drive him around a little? No, I drove the Ponovizhirov around. Oh, okay, sorry. The Ponovizhirov came to Miami Beach basically to collect money. He stayed three and a half months in the, uh, in the winter. And for four years, four winters in a row, 
I was his chauffeur. We three times a week, he went out to collect money. And that was an experience of a lifetime. And he was, there are no words to describe a personality like him. But he, uh, his mission in life was to build Torah. That was his, he told me once, he said, you know, I could have been the greatest Rosh Yeshiva. He said, I, I was an Emu in the Yeshiva. I'm the, now I don't even say Yeshiva in the Yeshiva. Because my task is to build the Yeshiva and to build other Yeshivas like it. Somebody else will say this year, and I'm going to build it. And he did. He had a dream to build 18 yeshivas in Israel. He built three big yeshivas. He built an orphan home. He built girl schools. And he was a remarkable Jew, just a remarkable Jew. And he was a good friend of mine. I, I hate to say it that way because it demeans him. But... Uh, he gave me advice. He protected me uh, in my shul. He, he, he knew how to handle people. I learned so much from him. So in the book of stories that uh, that is coming out soon, I have a few very good stories about him. And uh, he was really a superlative character. For for. People our age and our generation, you know, hearing names like this is well, it's hard see, to really. People in your generation cannot know Eastern European Jewry because it doesn't exist anymore. Right. It's not your fault, God forbid. Right. But the Gemara says uh, on Rebbe, on Rabbeinu Akodosh, the uh, editor of the Mishnah, the author, the great Rebbe. They asked him how come he was so great. So the Gemara says that he said, Pamachas Raisi, that's Rabbi Meir Meachorov. I once saw the back of Rabbi Meir. If I would have seen him head on, I would have been greater. But at least I saw him from the back. I still saw Eastern European Jewry from the back. All of my rabbeim were, were Lithuanian rabbonim. Well, everybody I knew it was still Yiddish. That was a different, different. It's not just a difference in the in degree. It's a difference in kind. That person doesn't exist anymore. I can't explain it to you, but it doesn't exist. And that's not to demean what we have now. I don't mean Shalom to do that. But that is not there anymore. That. That Litvishere, that Chsidish Rebbe, that's not there anymore. And I was fortunate enough to know them. And they had an influence on me. They saved me from a lot of trouble. And you have to realize that I did not have a beard then. And I didn't have a black suit. And most of the time I wasn't wearing a hat in Miami Beach because it's too hot. <laughs> So they had a hundred good reasons not to have anything to do with me. But that wasn't them. Can you speak to... 
can you can you speak to the difference you know from again you were able to experience this even if you saw it from the back you, you saw it and we didn't experience this at all first of all they had a tolerance for jews but then a jew was a jew was a jew you have to realize that in that generation the conservative wasn't like they are today and the intermarriage was not like today and the uh, there was no plan the politics in Israel wasn't like today. So uh, it wasn't as intense. But Apenovajarov told me many times about his conversations with Ben-Gurion. And Ben-Gurion respected him and he respected, you know, it was... Uh, to say that he was a fan of Ben-Gurion would not be true. But he dealt with him. And uh, so tolerance is one thing. They had very low expectations. You see, today we have very high expectations. We have high expectations materially. I grew up in a generation. My father never had a car. My father never owned his own home. I didn't expect to have a car. I didn't expect to own my own home. Who doesn't expect a car today? Who doesn't expect to own their own home? Who doesn't expect that the, in two weeks in Florida in the winter and that a summer vacation and you know, and who doesn't expect that? And a year in Israel and you know, it's a given. Well, if you have high expectations, many times you're doomed to disappointment. They had very low expectations of life. They all suffered tragedies. Bonavizhrov lost his family in the Holocaust. Satmarov lost his family in the Holocaust. Kloisenberger Rebbe lost his family in the Holocaust. So they had uh, different expectations of life. And they came to rebuild the Jewish people each in their own way, with their own talents and with their own effort. And uh, I'll tell you uh, one story that I have in the book, which to me is uh, probably my favorite story in life. That was when Rabbi Herzog, who was the then the chief rabbi, then it was Palestine. You know, when I went to public school, we were the Palestinians. Hmm. The Goyim used to holler at us, go back to Palestine. So uh, it was 1946, right after the war. Rabbi Herzog is the chief rabbi, traveled to Europe, so he traveled to the camps, to the survivors. And he also went to the Pope of Rome, Pius XII. And he came to the yeshiva in Chicago, and he came, so they honored him. I remember him with his, he was such an aristocrat, great silver beard with its top hat, 
rabbinic silver cane. It was, a, you know, it was aristocracy. I had a PhD from Cambridge. He was a go-no-lump. He wrote 10 volumes of Chuvas after the war to free the women that were Agunos, 10 volumes. There are thousands of Jews that are Jews because of him today. Anyway, he came to Chicago, and they honored him that he should say Yeshiva in the Yeshiva. I was before Bar Mitzvah yet. I remember it. So uh, the Yeshiva was, uh, uh, I was 11, 11, 12 years old, and there were boys there that were 25 that was the whole yeshiva, was the whole American Midwest, about 250 people. And I remember he said the shir in Yiddish. I even remember the Indian. It made such an impression on me. He said the shir on Enshliach Advaravera, the Tesis. And then when the shir was over, after like 40 minutes, he said, uh, I wanted to speak to the young men, and he spoke a perfect English because he was the chief rabbi in Ireland. As I mentioned, he had a PhD from Cambridge. And he said as follows, that I want you to know that I just came from the Pope of Rome. And I gave him a list. And on the list were 10,000 names of Jewish children who were sequestered in Catholic institutions in Europe by their parents in order to save them from the Germans. And I said to the Pope that I wanted him to give back the children. And and he said the Pope told him that he could not do so because anybody that entered a Catholic institution was immediately baptized. And he said, anyone that was baptized in the Christian faith cannot be given over to be raised in a different faith. And then when he said that, then he put his head down on the lectern and he wept. I have never in my life seen anybody weep like that. But he didn't weep for the tenth. The whole two thousand years of the exile poured out, and then he raised himself. He looked around the room at us, and he said, "I cannot do anything more for those ten thousand children. But what are you going to do to build the Jewish people? What are you going to do?" for Claudia And later on, uh, when we all went by his uh, standing in the front and we all went to uh, shake his hand and receive a blessing from him, so he said, uh, did you hear what I said? Remember what I said. Don't forget what I said. So I want to tell you, I'm a rabbi a long, long time, Baruch Hashem, by Claudia Well over 55 years in the official rabbonus. 
And the Jewish people are a hard people. If we wouldn't be, we wouldn't have survived. And rabbis have bad days. And I've had my share. And I often thought to myself, what do I need this for? Right? I can go back and be a lawyer. In fact, I was offered a number of positions with law firms in New York. But I always heard Rabbi Herzog in my ear. What are you going to do? And I think that 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 challenge still exists. Different generation, different methods, different technology, everything different. But the question is the same. What are you going to do for Claudius? What are you going to do to help build the Jewish people? So uh, that's my that, that really was my main influence in my life. That always reverberated within me. And not only me, I mean, uh, that generation from the Chicago Yeshiva produced people who founded institutions, who made Aliyah, who, who were great Rabbonim, who were uh, you know, just outstanding people. Because he lit the fire for us. So you say, what's the deal? We don't have people like that today. I don't have a Rabbi Herzog that can come and talk. But all right, Zemashiach, so you have to deal with what is. Door, door, the door shows. You stuck the door, Kishmor, so that we can't complain. But you ask, what's the difference? That the, the difference is that they were most enough to build Clown Yisrael. And so, therefore, whatever we have is because that generation did it. That's extremely powerful. We'll get right back to this episode, but you know what we're here for. You know what time it is. It's AMR time. Don't skip. It's flu season. It's flu season. It's COVID season, unfortunately. Have the pharmacy in your corner. You're in bed. You're not feeling too good. Or you have these prescription drugs that, you know what? Maybe it snowed a lot and you just don't want to run out to the pharmacy to get it. Have the pharmacy in your corner that'll say, hey, we got you. We're going to come to your house. But hold on, Nachi. Oh, we're holding on. AMR Pharmacy, it's not like they could provide service for everyone in New York, New Jersey. Yes, they can. So what I did there? That's, that's, wow. that's just the way it is, folks. Enough is enough. Give them a call at 848-222-1110. Or if you're from Gen Z, head to amrfarmrx.com. <laughs> we just lost 20,000 subscribers. If you're wondering what Gen Z is... Google it. But while you're Googling it, also check Ooh. where is AMR. I like that. What is AMR? They're the best. They're Hit the best up. pharmacy. See you guys. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Uh, Rabbi Wan, I, I know one of the things that I, I know you for is uh, your love for history, um, being a historian, and and, and maybe, maybe the most popular from historian um, out there. Is there a point in history oh, that part- My publisher. <laughs> is there is there a particular point in history that you specifically uh enjoy looking at learning from reading about more than the others it has changed over the years uh and i uh
let me in, in Miami Beach I was interested in uh, the time of the Rishonim, Rashi, the Balatesis, the Rambam, Spanish Jewry, Ashkenazic Jewry, the beginnings. Later on, uh, when I came to Muncie, for some reason, I was more interested in uh, Bayesheni and at the time of the Gonim, Rabbi Nasadja, Rabbi Nachananel. And I think for the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years, I really uh, put a lot of study and effort into uh, the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, uh, modern Jewish history. In fact, again, if I can use you as a publicity, I I have a book that's coming out on uh, the response of orthodoxy to modernity from 1820 to 1940. So you have two books coming out. Yeah, I have, another, I have a book on stories, and then I have this book coming out, yeah. Wow. wow. You have to try and keep busy. You know, at my age, if you're not busy, then, you know, goodbye. But you don't get tired? I'm always tired. <laughs> what do you mean you don't get tired? Don't get tired? I, I, at certain points, certain people just, you know, they get older, and then they, you know, you have every excuse to just sit down and learn all day and not put out anything. My eyesight doesn't allow me to learn anymore, unfortunately. I have a chavrus every morning, but he reads. But I I can't do the learning that I once did. I can't see. Mm. But uh, right now I'm working on a movie uh, on the Abarbanel that I hope will be out within the year. So, I, you know, the fun of Isherov told me as follows. Uh I once asked him the same question. You know, he's working, he's building a school in Ashdod, he's building one in Benebrak, he's doing this, he's doing that. I said, Remy, why are you know? So he said that uh, he believes that if you're doing good work and then you're in the middle of a project, so he said the Malachim in heaven will let you alone. He's in the middle of the project, let him alone. So he said, you always have to be in the middle of a project. So they have a, uh, an excuse to let you alone. It, seem, it seems like you have a unusual passion and curiosity with history. I mean, well, uh, I, the books are one thing, but to, to go ahead and produce a movie, well, what drives that passion? Well, people are the most interesting things on the planet. That's true. And uh, the Torah, it says, yes, Sefer told us Sodom. It's a book about people. Not a book about God, because he, you don't know, when you finish the book, you don't know anything more than when you started. But people, and people don't change that much. And uh, what made people great uh, 200 years ago make them great today. And what made them petty 200 years ago make them petty today. And uh, I'm interested in that. that uh, you know, that always fascinates me. And I must admit that over the years, I've said I'm 55 years a run. 
So even though there were many times that I had difficulties overall, I had a very easy ride. I had wonderful Balabatim, I had wonderful synagogues, congregations. And uh, therefore, it allowed me a lot of latitude to do a lot of things. It was never, I never felt I was an employee of a congregation, that I was working for the board of directors. Again, I didn't mean that in disrespect, but, I, but they got the message. I'm, I, I saw myself as working, so to speak, for the Jewish people. So if the Jewish people needed a movie, I'm going to try and make a movie. They need books, I'm going to try and write books. Whatever is involved, I'm going to try and do. Meanwhile, I naturally tried never to neglect the congregation. And uh, most of the time, I was able somehow to uh, balance all the juggling's balls that were in the air. Do you, do you, I think that's very important. I, uh, it's a mentality that Rabbonim should have. They're not working for the people. They're working, you know. Moshe is Evid Hashem. He's not Evid, uh, not Evid Lamodim. He's not a servant of the people. So you've been in the Rabbinah for, for many, many, many years. Do you have any regrets or something that you maybe would have you would change? <laughs> no, I'm perfect. <laughs> I have, certainly everybody has regrets, but I don't have any major regrets. I did. I never, for instance, I never regret a position I did not take. I've been offered very, very many positions in my lifetime. Some of them quite prestigious. I never regret that I didn't take that position. Uh, Certainly, I have regrets uh, that uh, perhaps uh, I could have handled certain situations in a better fashion than I did. But basically, uh, basically, I uh, generally I know I don't like you know that a great uh, Negro League pitcher Satchel Page. You remember him? You ever yeah, hear of definitely. Him? So the great Satchel Page said. Never turn around, they're gaining on you. And I think that that's a wise statement. They're gaining on you. If you turn around, you got to look forward, not look backwards. We look back, but again, we don't look backwards, we look inside. Mm. There's a great difference between the two. So uh, my answer would be I have very few regrets. So, so looking forward a bit, because we, you know, we don't want to look back and I guess living in the present, do you think that there's something as a whole Yisrael, as a Jewish people, is there something we could be doing better? Is there something that we're not doing well enough now? Well, I, I think uh, we're not reading the, uh, the American situation correctly. I think uh, especially the Orthodox Jewry in America is going to have a very hard time. Uh, to a great extent, they're whistling past the graveyard. 
I think that the, the 1980s and 1990s are going to repeat themselves. Uh, I think the future of the Jewish people is Eretz Israel. I mean, we do. The state of Israel. Like it or not, that's the way it is. And uh, if you want to be productive, this is the place to be productive. Can you, can you elaborate a bit on, on the first part about, I guess, the American Orthodox Jews not reading the current situation? Right? Well, I mean, uh, to put it mildly, uh, the uh, progressive uh, attitude towards religion generally and towards Orthodox Judaism particularly is very inimical. And uh, you can have laws passed in the United States that'll make it very hard for you to be Jewish. But, uh, you know... Uh, they want to. They'll run your schools. They'll tell you what to teach. They'll tell you what the curriculum is, what the hours of study should be. You're saying we should. Uh, everyone should really just make make the move. I didn't say that because it's, I don't know if that's. Everyone has to make their own choice, but I think everyone has to start to recognize what's going on. Again, and you're, an hist- you're really an historian. Does this period of time that we're in right now, does, does it you know, look well, familiar? The Jewish people is as follows. The Meiri uh, has it in his Akdomata Ovos. The history of the Jewish people is the Jews come to a country for a few hundred years, it's good. The Jews prosper, the country prospers, everything goes well. The Meshachachma in the uh, Harshus Bukhukosai talks about it, Rameir Simcha. He was in the beginning of the 1900s. And he says, and then all of a sudden something happens and the, and the Golis is not good anymore. And then it becomes destructive. And then that chapter ends. Every chapter in the exile has ended. The Jews are not going back to Spain. They're not going back to France. They're not going back to Germany. They're not going back to Poland. They're not going back to Russia. They're not going back to the Arab countries. They're not going back to Yemen. Every exile has ended. So you think that yours won't end. Okay. I hope you're right. <laughs> on, on a lighter note, Rabbi Wine, you that are- is a lighter. <laughs> I'm sure you you've had many experiences, um, and I I I personally had the schos to to daven Yeshua a few times, and I love hearing you speaking. Is there any uh, funny story that happened to you that sticks out in your mind? <laughs> Lots of funny stories. Could you share one of them with us? Again, this story is in my book, but it's uh, I used to have a series of what I call the airplane stories things that happened to me while I traveled. So, uh, I think the first of my uh, travel stories that I told over in Shul and then it became a staple, people used to ask me to repeat it. I was uh, driving my car to Newark Airport to take a plane 
I was then I was with the OU, they added the OU Cashers. And I was going to take a plane to Chicago. And from Chicago, I had a plane that connected to the, a slaughterhouse in York, Nebraska, that the OU was looking at. So uh, that morning when I left the house, it's such a, it was snowing. And the traffic was uh, such that uh, I came to the airport too late to catch my plane. So I went up to the counter. So she said, oh, that's not a problem. She says, Rabbi, we'll put you on the next plane to Chicago. And uh, then do you have a connection to York? You'll be able to make the same connection, the same connection. So I thanked her and I said, you know, uh, unfortunately, I left very early. I didn't have breakfast. I had ordered a kosher breakfast on the plane. Do you think you can order a kosher breakfast for me on this plane, too? So she said to me, well, you know, it's, uh, it's within a half hour of taking off. I don't think they can get the, the, the meal on the plane, but I'll type it in anyway. She typed in Rabbi Wine for a kosher meal. I get on the plane. I sit down. Plane takes off. Baruch Hashem, everything is fine. Then the stewardess came over to me. She said, did you order a special meal? I said, yes, I did. She said, what's your name? I said, my name is Wine. So she comes back in a minute and she says, I don't have a meal for Wine, but I have a meal for Mr. Lesh. So I said to her, you know, it's snowing for Lesh. Maybe he didn't make it. Would you announce on the public address system, Mr. Lesh, and see if he answers? If he doesn't answer, I'll take the meal. She said, that's a good idea. So she said, uh, Mr. Lesh, Mr. Lesh, please respond. Naturally, Lesh is somewhere on the LIE or somewhere. And uh, so we said, they gave me the meal. So I asked her when she picked everything up, I said, can you look on the manifest and see where Lesh was going? So she tells me, well, he's going to Chicago, but he's got a plane flight to York, Nebraska. So I figured I'm not going to have breakfast on him. I'm going to have lunch on him, too. And I get on the plane and I sit down and the stewardess says, uh, did you order a kosher meal? I said, yes, I did. She said, what's your name? I said, Lesh. She comes back. She says, I have a kosher meal, but it's for wine. So I said, why didn't you announce wine on the address <laughs> system and see if he answers? No one answered, and I had with the meal. <laughs> that is incredible. I like that. Well, I, I, if, if, if Mr. Lesh is listening to this. Uh... I, I met Mr. Lesh uh, once. <laughs> <laughs> Um, something that we ask all our guests is, and, and for you particularly, I'm most excited to ask it. If there's one person in history that you could sit down with for an hour, who would you want to spend that hour with? Well, you know, it's, <laughs> 
very hard question to answer. But I would really have uh, wanted to have had the uh, opportunity and honor to know uh, I made a motion of mine. Because I think that Moshe, uh, Moshe, Lokom Kamosha, that really says it all. And uh, I think that uh, after the biblical period, and after the Tanoim and Amaroim, he's the composite Jew. Well, what would you talk to him about? If you don't know what to talk to the Rambam about, then uh, you're really in trouble. How, how does he view things? What, what, what's his view? What's his view of history? What's his view of what happened to us? What does he think we should do now? How does he see the Torah surviving? You know, all the things that he wrote about. I mean, we only see a piece of the Rambam because in the yeshivas we only have the halachic Rambam and in Hebrew University they only have the philosophic Rambam and by the Goyim they only have the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Rambam and Aristotle but the Rambam is on one whole piece you got to put it all together that's what makes it so hard to grab a hold of him you know, it's the old uh, uh, Example of the three sightless people holding the elephant. So one holds the trunk and he says it's this. One holds the leg, he thinks it's this. One holds the tusk and he thinks it's this. But none of them see that it's an elephant. It's all together. And that's true here too. Do you, do you think, do you feel that Mashiach is near? I'll say he comes by verifying, so it doesn't make a difference what I think or don't think. I do think we live in extraordinary times. I do think that uh, we live in a time uh, when Kibbutz Goliath happened and is happening, when a lot of the uh, prophecies of the Nevi'im have come true before our eyes, that I do see. But the Mashiach is a uh, pretty incendiary subject. Let him come, let him do what he has to do. I uh, only thing I can say is that false messianism has done a great deal of damage to the Jewish people throughout the ages. Everybody has to define what false messianism is. From the 613 mitzvahs, there's a lot of them, a lot of them, only like Kayanam could do and stuff like that. But is there one particular mitzvah that that has a special place in your heart. One of the things that I looked forward to in making Aliyah to come to Israel was to be able to sleep in the sukkah. The 
which I had been able to do when I came to Yerushalayim, which I never was able to do in the exile for various reasons. And uh, so I treasure that. Why, why specifically that mitzvah of sleeping in the sukkah? Why does that have a bigger impact? It's sort of sukkah, right? You know, then you feel, I really felt that, you know, uh, I'm at home. Right, Wine. What what would you say? I'm going to ask the question one way. Nach, he's going to say it the other way. Uh, I'm going to start off with what What would you say is the worst advice that someone ever gave you? To be a fan of the Chicago White Sox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the White Sox are rough. I mean, you did get one World Series though. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Well, what's the best advice you ever gotten? Best advice I ever got was. Of the Satmarov, he told me at a certain instance in Miami Beach, don't respond, just be quiet. And that was sage advice. And I've applied that advice much later in many, many other instances. So again, I never regretted what I didn't say. Right, why not? As a, as a rub for many years and seeing a lot of people and helping people through life, what's, what's something, a constant theme that you've seen uh, for people looking for help? What, what's, what's something that people are always trying to get? One of the problems that I see uh, in much of religious Jewish society today is that people don't have a rub. They don't have somebody to rely on. And then there comes, there always comes uh, instances, tragedies, challenges, difficulties, and they they they're on their own. So you know, if you're diving around, let's say you dive in one place Friday night, one place Shabbos, one place Mincha, and then the middle of the week you pick up a minion. So you don't have anybody. Nobody knows you, and you don't know anybody. And uh, one of the great assets of having a rod, and I'm somebody who had a rod, had a number of rods on it, is that you're not alone in the world. And if you don't have, not only you don't have it, you denigrate it. The Pirkelvis says, I say, look around. You know, one of the interesting things I've taught Pirkelvis all my life, I wrote a book on Pirkelvis that's uh, been very popular. One of the rules that I have in Pirkelvis is that they meant what they said. If they said it, if Chazal said it, then they meant it. So it says, I say, look around. And why does it say, I say, look around? You have to make him the Rav. It could be that he's not the Vilna Gone. It could be that you can learn better than him. It could be you don't like the way he wears a tie. I say, look around. I think that's good advice. I recommend it to everybody. Everyone, I want to ask you something. It, it could maybe be a little too personal. So if it is, you could definitely pass on this question. 
Um, I, I know that you, you had two wives that, that passed away. And, I, you know, I'm sure different people in Cloudy Shore diff, deal with different tragedies. But you seem like someone that, that had a very deep relationship um, when you were married. And, but even after that, it doesn't seem like you're, you're too let down, that you're too in the dumps, but you kept on moving. How, what, what, what gives you that energy to, to just plow through and keep on moving? I'll tell you another story. This one's not in the book. The Yosem Mendelovich told me this story. The, uh, you know, the Russian dissident. So when he, he, was, he was in prison. And in prison, he's, he became more and more observant, religious. So he decided one day he's going to wear a kippah. Now, the prison uniform did not include a kippah. So he took and he cut out the piece of sleeve and he put it on his head. The guard saw it and he reported him to the warden. And the warden called him in and he said, Now, beloved, you know, you're defacing the people's property and you have no right to wear uh, that thing on your head. Take it off. So Menelovich told them, I'm not going to take it off. I refuse to take it off. So the captain, the KGB captain, took his pistol out of the holster and put it on the desk. And he said, Menelovich, I'm telling you to take off that brag. Menelovich said, I'm not going to take it off. You can force it off, but I'm not taking it off. So then he took the pistol, the captain, and he pointed at Mendelovich and he said, take it off. And Mendelovich said, no, I'm not going to take it off. And the captain all of a sudden put the pistol down and put his head on the desk and wept. And the captain said to him, Mendelovich, aren't you afraid to die? And Mendelovich said to him, listen, I don't want to die. I want to get out of here. I want to end up in Jerusalem. I want to get married and have a family. I don't want to die. But I know that death comes from the same hand that gave me life. And you think that death comes from Brezhnev. And that's why you fear it. And I know that I can bear it. Mendelovich is uh, by me one of the 36 tzaddikim in the world. But that's a lesson in life, right? The Bernish Holland gives it to us. What can you do? Doesn't help to complain. Doesn't help to say it's not fair. That's not given to us to understand. I don't say that on me, you know. You know, it's not easy to be alone. I don't, uh, you know, I don't recommend it. But, uh, you know, 
זה מה שיש. Bowen, you should live and be well on Meva Esrim. And this might be a little bit of a difficult question to answer, but what do you want to be remembered for? <laughs> I don't know if my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren will remember me as a Zeta father. I think that's the... Highest, uh, title of the person That's beautiful. We're, we're just going to end off with uh, one last question. Um, what What's a lesson that the the younger generation should try to keep into their just put into their minds? The younger generation. They what have do they lower expectations? Lower expectations. That's the message. Mm-hmm. Not to think that the, anybody or the world or your parents or the school or the yeshiva or the rosh yeshiva owes you anything. You make your way in the world. Have lower expectations. You won't be disappointed in them. Well, Rabbi Wine, thank you for taking out time from your night uh, to spend some time with us. Nachi and I will be able to say we didn't get to see you in person, but we got to get a glimpse of you through the screen. So okay, be well and be much Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching or listening to this episode of the Meaningful People Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Uh so much was said and I, I personally enjoyed so much sitting down, getting to meet everyone, talk to him. Have you ever heard him speak before? I have. Never, I think, in person. Well, I guess still never in person. Yeah. But this was an intimate setting. It was. Us you know, him. 86 years old. Baruch Hashem Kananahara. Sharp. Yeah. Really, really he's sharp. He's so sharp. He's so sharp and he's got humor. So it was really incredible. Guys, uh, we got some really big guests coming your way. And when I say big, I mean like... Tall? Spiritually and physically as well. Yeah. We have a guest coming up that's like six foot ten. Yeah, well, so you can guess a little bit see. who that is. You know what I'm saying? But but we want to talk about Daily someone. Giving. Yeah, we love them. Guys, make sure you go to dailygiving.org. One dollar a day for eternity. That's in your bank account in Shemayim. So nice. You'll see the many places that the uh your dollar is going, really helping support these organizations that are changing the world. Dailygiving.org. No more questions. No more. Th- Come on. Just go to it. Just, just go to it. it and give it a shot. Guys, we can't wait to see you next week. Ciao. And don't forget. Oh, I jumped the gun. Oh, okay. <laughs> don't forget. To- no, you want to say ciao. It's like Kriya Shmalamita. You can all talk after. Don't, don't forget to do misses.